Chapter One of Tim. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry Kaplan. Tim by Howard Sturgis. Chapter One. Tim's real name was not Tim, so much is certain. What it was, I have never inquired. The nickname had been bestowed on him so early in life that the memory of such men and women as knew him ran not to the contrary. Tim was Tim by immemorial custom. Even his father, who had little reverence for established usages, never thought of altering this one, and, as one name is as good as another, we too will call him by the only one by which he was ever known. Tim was a slightly made, lean, brown child, but without the pretty color-brown children usually have. He had such regular little features and such a pale little face that he might almost have been called faded had he ever looked otherwise. Mrs. Quitchett had pronounced him to be the thinnest and lightest baby ever she see when he was transferred to her care from that of the monthly nurse, in which opinion she was supported by that lady who might be said to be an authority on such matters. Possibly she too might throw some light on the question of how he came by that pre-baptismal nickname of his, for she alone had had much to do with him previous to the day when he had been carried, a poor little skinny Christian elect, to be received into the pale of the church. That event was seven years into the past at the time I write of, and Tim, despite his puny appearance, having struggled through the usual maladies of childhood and cut several of his second teeth, was living in an old house in one of the western counties of England. The Stoke Ashton Manor House, of which the most modern rooms dated from the days of Elizabeth, had been the home of the Darley family through ages of unbroken descent, until a part of it having been destroyed by fire in the year of our Lord 1780, the then existing Darley had built the big house up in the park and called it Darley Court. Thenceforward, for the next seventy years or so, what was left of the manor house became the abode of widowed mothers, spinster sisters, or married sons, until the day when, no such relative laying claim to it at the moment, old Squire Dorley led it to Tim's parents. The first seven years of the child's life in the queer old house could not well have been less eventful. He was happy enough in the company of Mrs. Quitchett, and his old setter Bess, partly perhaps from never having known any other. His father, nurse told him, was in India. Where was that? Oh, a long way off. Farther than Grandhurst? Yes, much farther. The schoolmaster, who came and gave him a lesson now and then, showed him India on the map, but he was not much the wiser. His mother, Mrs. Quitchett, never mentioned, and as she never introduced the subject, he asked no questions, having the habit of deferring to her in all matters, and her rule, though absolute, was not a hard one. There was only one point on which he ever questioned her authority. In his determination, on no account, to wear a hat, he was adamant. We all have our idiosyncrasies, and this was Tim's. On Sundays alone could he be prevailed upon to allow a small round covering of mixed straw to be stuck on the extreme back of his head when Mrs. Quitchett took him to church in his best clothes. At first, when he was very little, his picture book used to be taken with him. But when he was considered to have reached an age at which the rector's discourses would be of service to him, this indulgence was withdrawn, and he found thenceforward his principal entertainment in the painted window just opposite his seat. 
It had been put up in memory of some dead child, and the subject had a great fascination for Tim, who used to call it his window. It represented a long stretch of quiet upland, arched by a twilight sky, paling into a streak of soft light, where it disappeared on the distant horizon. Walking across the green came the tender, gracious figure of the good shepherd, bearing a lamb in his loving arms. Tim knew just such a bit of down where the lambs played, and could almost fancy sometimes that he saw the figure coming towards him from out of the sunset. The whole picture was subdued in coloring, and set for sharp contrast in a frame of tall lilies and jubilant golden-haired angels. Not less bright was the head of the squire's little grandson, who sometimes knelt in the big court pew hard by, where, almost hidden from the rest of the church, old Mr. Darley persisted in attending worship, to the scandal of his daughter Miss Kate, who inclined to high church, and to whom tall family pews which turned their backs on the altar were an abomination. Thus once a week did Tin conform to laws social and religious, but the other six days saw him scudding barehead over the fields, searching for flowers along the hedgerows, or, tired at last with his wanderings, sitting by the side of some little brook, nursing his knees, and singing low to himself little quaint snatches of song culled here and there from old books, and set to the nursery tunes Mrs. Quitchett hummed to him, or to others picked up, heaven knows where, perhaps from the birds. No place came amiss to Tim as a resting place except a chair. He would sit on the soft green grass, in a tree, on a stile, a table, a window-sill, anywhere but on those articles of furniture which custom has set aside for the purpose. In the winter he and Bess curled themselves up in the shaggy bearskin rug before the fire and fell asleep. In the summer he sat in the patches of sun on the carpet and told Bess stories from the Arabian Nights, of which he had discovered a copy with pictures in the old library. The fairy, Pari Banu, unlocked the wonders of her palace for that patient hound. Prince Farouz Shah flew by on the enchanted horse, Morgiana whirled in her dance, and Gulnar rose from the sea to be the bride of the Persian king. Only the story of the lady who whipped the little dogs, Tim never related, out of consideration for his companion's feelings. Such was Tim's life, reading to a dog, singing to the streams, having fellowship with birds and flowers, in a strange world of his own creation, hatless, lean, brown, and happy. The hours slipped softly by him without his noting their passing. He knew when it was Sunday, was glad when it was fine, not sorry when it rained, full of strange dreams and fancies, companionless yet not alone, for nature was with him, and so Tim grew to be eight years old. One day the postman brought Mrs. Quitchett a letter which had come all the way from India, and a long way it was in those days when no Suez Canal existed to shorten the journey. The letter had no beginning, because Tim's father, who had written it, was a man who never quite knew how to begin his letters to an old nurse. To say, dear Mrs. Quitchett, seemed to imply undue familiarity. Madam was altogether out of the question. Mrs. Quitchett sounded harsh and dictatorial, which he had no wish to be, and to write a long letter in the third person would have been a needless exertion. So the letter came to the point at once, without preliminary compliment. "'You will perhaps be surprised to hear,' it said in neat upstrokes and downstrokes and beautifully straight lines, "'that I intend coming home for good. My doctor strongly advises my leaving India, and I am the more inclined to consent that I am very desirous of seeing my son, 
to whom I am of the opinion the personal care of a father may be of more service during such time as I am spared to him than a somewhat larger fortune at my death. Nurse Quitchett glanced over her venerable spectacles at Tim, who was lying asleep on the window seat, with his arm round the neck of the faithful Bess, but returned without making any remark to her reading. "'You will have the goodness to acquaint my son with my change of plans.' I shall probably reach home by about October, and shall hope to find my boy ready to give me a welcome. I am afraid his education must have been rather neglected, but he is young yet, and the deficiency may easily be supplied, while I am sure that in your hands his health, at least, must have been well looked after. I have always disapproved of the selfishness of some Indian parents who, keeping their children with them in an unhealthy climate for their own gratification, injure their health, perhaps for life. I hope to be repaid for my six years separation from my only child by finding a true sturdy little pink-and-white Briton waiting to greet me on my return. With my best thanks for your care of the boy and the regular reports you have sent me of him, believe me, truly yours, William Ebbsley. Mrs. Quitchett put down the letter, took off her glasses, which were somehow quite wet, and looked again, not without apprehension, at the sleeping boy. In vain she tried to make any of the epitaphs used in the letter fit the child before her. He was as unlike the picture of the true sturdy little pink-and-white Briton on which his father's fancy dwelt so fondly as one boy could be unlike another. William Ebbsley, observing that Anglo-Indian babies were as a rule small and sallow, had concluded with defective logic that his child, not being brought up in India, would be neither the one nor the other. He had thought of this imaginary child of his until, Prometheus-like, he had given life to the figure he had himself created, and had anyone cared to inquire what the boy was like, would unhesitatingly have described him. Nowadays his illusions would be rudely dispelled by photography, but when Tim was a child the art was also in its infancy, and it had not become the fashion to have babies photographed once a year. On one occasion, when Tim was three years old, Mrs. Quitchett had set up his hair in a sort of crest and carried him to a neighboring town to be photographed, but the child could not be got to sit still, and ended by a flood of tears, so that the little card which finally went to Mr. Ebbersley was hardly satisfactory as a likeness. Mrs. Quitchett herself confessed as much, and the father was quite indignant at this libel on his child. It never even occurred to him that the photograph, bad as it was, had at least been taken from the real boy, and as such might be nearer the truth than the portrait his fancy had painted. Writing not being a strong point of Mrs. Quitchett's, her epistolary style was remarkable chiefly for its terseness, and she would as soon have thought of writing a novel at once as of launching into any description of Tim's appearance beyond such casual expressions of admiration as nurses use of their bantlings, and which are not meant to be taken literally. After a while Tim stirred uneasily, and Bess, roused into semi-consciousness by his change of position, put up her cold nose and touched his cheek. The boy woke with a start and sat up, to find the eyes of his old nurse fixed on him with an expression he had never seen in them before. It was gone as soon as she saw that he was awake, but not before he had remarked it, and springing quickly to her, he asked, "'Why do you look at me like that? What have you got there?' The second question, happily furnishing nurse with an excuse for evading the first, which she would have been puzzled how to answer. "'It's a letter from your papa,' she said. "'And I've got a surprise for you. 
what do you think is going to happen he's coming home replied tim quietly as if he had known it all along law bless the boy called out mrs quitchett whoever could have told you but there nobody could for i've just this minute finished reading the letter and it's not been out of my hand tim nodded sagaciously i dreamed it he said as he walked off into the garden leaving his nurse in that condition which she would herself as described as a capability of being knocked down with a feather well of all the out-of-the-way odd children ever i see she ejaculated under her breath and then the father's picture of the little briton recurred to her so pathetically comic in its contrast to facts that she could not help smiling though the tears followed close after as she thought he'll come between me and my boy well i ought to have known how it would be but though the old nurse might shed a few tears in private and to tim the words my father is coming conveyed it is true some misty sense of approaching change the letter and its contents left no perceptible mark on the inhabitants of the manor-house mrs quitchett could not spare much time to speculation and her charge had not contracted the habit of looking ahead what difference his father's homecoming would make in his life he knew not and scarcely cared to imagine the summer passed away in no respect unlike those other five or six he could remember the roses bloomed and paled and fell the birds built their nests laid their eggs hatched and reared their young all in due order the cornfields passed through all their accustomed phases july succeeded to june august to july september to august and nature the dear old nurse led this youngest of her nurslings through the peaceful hot months unsuspicious of those that were to follow the first touch of autumn saddened our tim the waving fields of golden grain where their wind rippled orange shadows had lent a thrill of happiness to a little soul alive to all such influences and now that the meek stately ears had bowed their heads to the sickle he missed their presence and sorrowed over the stubble this month too the guns were popping all over the countryside and tim hated guns for two reasons first because they startled the quiet of his usual rambles giving a sense of insecurity even to the quietest fields and secondly because each report that made the child jump and tremble meant the death or wounding of a bird and that was keen grief to him End of chapter one recording by larry kaplan